Part of Walgreens headquarters is now poised for residential development. And I'll talk with reporter Ali Moradi about changes in Chicago's Little Italy neighborhood. Yeah, I mean, I think neighborhoods are living, breathing things that are always changing. And the pandemic has changed them in so many ways, right? Like even just thinking about the fact that everybody works remotely and what that's done for the restaurant scene in downtown versus up in the neighborhoods. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Tuesday, February 13th. Are you sick of not being your bank's top priority? We are too. At Wintrust, we take a different approach to banking. We're proud to be your one true banking partner focused on your unique financial goals that's right in your backyard. Whether you're opening your first account, buying a home, planning for the future, or starting a business, we have tailored solutions to get you there. Stop settling and start experiencing a better way to bank at Wintrust.com. Wintrust, different approach, better results. Banking products provided by Wintrust Financial Corporation Banks, member FDIC. I'm joined by reporter Ali Moradi here to talk about struggling Italian restaurant owners in Little Italy. You would think that that area would be would be flourishing or, or Italian restaurants in that area would be flourishing anyway. Talk to me about what's going on. Yeah. So after New Year's Eve, the Rosebud, which is a restaurant that has been over there since the 70s, yeah. decided to shut down permanently. They do own the building, so they're going to do events there and you know try to make some use of the space. They've got apartments above it that kind of help pay the taxes, that sort of thing. But when I heard that news, it sort of made me want to check into how the other restaurants along Taylor Street in Little Italy are doing because Little Italy has shrunk over the decades. I was curious to see when its heyday was, what are the struggles, how is it recovering from the pandemic, all of that. Yeah. And and talk to me about that heyday and kind of a little bit of the history of that neighborhood. Little Italy is an interesting one. You know, like a lot of um, neighborhoods in Chicago that were at one point singularly ethnic, um, it drew a lot of Italian immigrants at the turn of the century. Between 1870 and about 1900, census records show that more than 15,000 Italians moved to the city and they settled around Taylor and Halstead streets because Jane Addams Hall House was there, which really helped, you know, it's very famous, it it helped immigrants kind of, you know, get settled. Mm, So it expanded from there, but then the highways were built, those left their mark the construction of the University of Illinois at Chicago campus in the 1960s caused perhaps the most profound changes to the neighborhood. Residents fought that tooth and nail. The Chicago Tribune reported that more than 800 houses and 200 businesses were raised in Little Italy to make room for the campus. So that was a huge chunk of the neighborhood. But after that, you know, there was still a pretty thriving restaurant scene along Little Italy. Sure. There are restaurants there today, even that are third generation owned. You know, the owners, maybe they're in their 60s or 70s now. Their grandparents started them, you know, after they came over from Italy. So if you ask them what the heyday was of, you know, Taylor Street in the neighborhood, they will tell you the late 80s, early 90s mm. when Michael Jordan was playing for the Bulls. And every time the Bulls played at the United Center, which, you know, is a few blocks away, they said it was impossible to get a seat at any of the restaurants along Taylor Street, especially the Rosebud, you know, which is kind of on the far end there of Taylor Street. One person told me that when Michael Jordan retired, it killed everybody. Wow. So, you know, you have that happening. And and then fast forward to the pandemic, mm-hmm. right? 
Taylor Street now, it's really sandwiched in between the Illinois Medical District and, you know, the university. So you have nowadays a pretty robust lunch business over there. You've got workers from the hospital. You've got workers and students from the campus. They're walking back and forth during lunchtime. But what I am told is that the dinner crowds have not returned in droves. You know, students, they aren't spending a lot of money at at sit-down, fancy Italian restaurants. Things just aren't back to where they were. It hasn't recovered. I talked to the owner of Pompeii, which is one of the third-generation-owned restaurants over there, and he estimated revenues down about 15 to 18%. But if we look at that in context, it is really quite telling because over the past you know, three or four years, inflation has driven up the cost of food. It's driven up menu prices. So a lot of restaurants, even if their business is down, their revenue is actually up because they've had to increase their prices. So when you see a restaurant that has revenue that has fallen over the past three or four years, it's very telling. So as you mentioned, Rosebud closed right after New Year's Eve. What led up to that closure? I was told that pre-pandemic, Rosebud would serve no less than 150 people a night on weekdays and 300 on weekends. That dropped down to 20 or 30 people a night. That is just not sustainable. You know, even when you own the building, which as I mentioned, a lot of these um, restaurant owners do in Little Italy because they've been passed down through the generations. Even when you own the building, opening up for a nightly dinner service, you're going to lose money. So what they told me was if we use it just as events, we'll we'll be guaranteed, you know, to know that we're going to make money off of an event. So they decided to close. But, you know, so that's kind of like directly attributed to the pandemic, basically. A lot of the business over there, like I mentioned, it's hospital workers, it's university workers. Um, Different restaurant owners told me that since the pandemic, they're not seeing as many parties from the uh, hospital workers that maybe they once did. People just being more cautious. That really didn't come back. Holiday parties in some ways. Also, you know, there were other big hits to the street before during the height of the pandemic. Francesca's on Taylor closed and Devonti and Oteca closed in 2020. They were open 24 and 10 years, respectively. Before the pandemic, Rosal's Italian Cucina closed after being open for almost 30 years. So those closures kind of create a compounding effect for the survivors, honestly, because you want, as, as a restaurant, you want a thriving street. You want to be known as a destination for Italian restaurants because it the businesses feed off of each other. Mm. Everyone I talked to said that, you know, they were saying, the rosebud is closed. This is not good for us either. It's not like, oh, great, we're going to get all the rosebuds dinner clients. No, they were not happy about it. They were like, this does not bode well for the rest of the street. And I have to wonder too about the impact of the the growing West Loop of what that's done to that that area too. Yeah, a lot of restaurant owners mentioned that specifically. They said, you know, over the past decade, the West Loop um, Randolph you know, restaurant row, as it's sometimes called, has been pulling diners away, especially with the rise of Uber, because that area, the Fulton Market District, a notoriously poor parking situation. Um, But having rideshare has helped with that. Now, the Fulton Market District continues to grow in popularity with the restaurant scene and residential. A lot of restaurant owners told me, too, that in the past couple of years, People who would drive in from the suburbs, um, they hesitate to do that now. They're worried about crime. They don't want to leave their car on the street. And that's a complaint that we hear from restaurants across the city, you know, and we have been hearing in recent years. So um, it's just all of these compounding issues. And it's a really interesting situation because there have been restaurants that have opened on Taylor Street. 
Yeah. You go over there, you walk up and down the street. It's not like it's full of vacancies from a real estate perspective, but it's like the cuisine desires are changing, right? There's still needs there, right? But it's, it's largely a lunch crowd now. It's like I said, a lot of students and um, maybe not so much Italian. So of the new restaurants that are opening, you, you mentioned they're not necessarily Italian. What What's coming into the neighborhood? Yeah, so you have some places that are, I think, quintessential of a college campus, like Insomnia Cookies. When I see an Insomnia, I know there's a college campus nearby. Right. <laughs> um, you know, there's like a Korean corn dog place. There's this restaurant called Taylor Tacos. She opened a little less than a year ago, and she told me that basically she already has had to change her hours because the dinner crowd's non-existent. And they were a caterer first before they opened the storefront. And she said, it's just a really tough street. And she's wondering if it's worth it to have a storefront. It's something she's assessing over and over because she said that the catering operation still carries the business. She said it's like a 90% to 10% split. She said she was expecting more like 60-40 or 50-50. And, you know, those are tacos. That's affordable to students. That's, you know, you can pop in and get it quickly if you're just dashing out for lunch also spoke to the owner of Peanut Park Trattoria, which opened over there in 2021. It's the owner of Coal Fire and the owner of Tempesta Market that teamed up to open Peanut Park. And, mm. you know, the owner of Coal Fire, um, his name's Dave Bonomi. He lives in the neighborhood. So he was sort of like, I want to put, you know, my money where my mouth is and do something for the neighborhood. Opened this Italian restaurant, uh, wanted to breathe some life in. And he said, you know, three years in, the bills are getting paid. But he could use more customers. And he said it just it hasn't been easy and it's a tough street, largely because of the foot traffic situation. Sure. Can you think of any other neighborhoods in Chicago that are going through something similar right now? I think we've seen this happen in Greektown somewhat. And it's interesting because in Chicago, there are Italian restaurants all over the city, sure. right? So it's not that there was necessarily a diaspora of Italian restaurants throughout the city, right, that have caused kind of the demise or the, the downfall or whatever it may be of Taylor Street. I think Greektown, we've seen that this happen more recently, where really in the past decade, most of the Greek restaurants were kind of concentrated there, you know, along Halstead Street. And really, you know, just like around the pandemic, few years before, a few years after, we've seen kind of these higher end sit down Greek places opening in different parts of the city and other types of restaurants move into the area that is still called Greek town, but was pretty singularly Greek restaurants. And it's, I think, just similar to what you're seeing happen here. And it's normal for a neighborhood to evolve, like we've talked about, right? Yeah. Little Italy has been changing. People probably lived there before all these Italian immigrants came in, right? Yeah. It's always evolving. It's always changing. It's not necessarily unhealthy. But when you talk to the restaurant owners um, themselves, especially the third generation ones, they say it's it's a shame what's happening. And we're surviving because we own the building and we're making it work. But we really don't know what the future is going to look like. And that, I think, is kind of the question here. Right. You know, I imagine that when you're talking about generational businesses being in an area, a neighborhood that saw an influx of a particular ethnic group, 
there's a lot of identity tied up to that too. So change would be really, you know, really difficult, I imagine. You note in reporting that even as the University of Illinois Chicago campus was kind of being built out, that even that kind of changed the neighborhood a little bit and the highway and all of these pieces kind of kept the neighborhood evolving. So on one hand, I suppose all neighborhoods are always evolving, but on the other, when there's a lot of identity wrapped up in a place, it hits a different note. Yeah. I mean, I think neighborhoods are living, breathing things yeah. that are always changing and the pandemic has changed them in so many ways, right? Like even just thinking about the fact that everybody works remotely and what that's done for the restaurant scene in downtown versus up in the neighborhoods. You're exactly right. For example, the the owner of Pompeii that I spoke with, he was telling me that he grew up in the neighborhood. Like his grandfather started Pompeii after he moved here from Italy and it was just a bakery. And then his uncles took it over and then he took it over from his uncles and he moved the location and he lived above the bakery too. It was like his grandpa lived in an apartment. He lived in an apartment. His uncles lived in an apartment. So he has lived in little Italy and, and worked there. And that was the norm for so many decades, I think, for a lot of these Italian immigrants. And then, you know, they're the generations that followed. And I think it is sad to watch. We also saw the Italian-American Sports Hall of Fame move recently in the past few years and a hotel came in and replaced it. That's right. So yeah. If you walk up and down Taylor Street, there's still, you know, the colors of the Italian flag are wrapped around the lamppost. And, you know, it's still a nice place to stroll and you get the feeling for it. There's still Catholic churches that are there and, and you can feel the history, but it's maybe exactly that, right? It's a little bit more history than it is kind of the present. Yeah, definitely. All right, Allie, thanks so much. Always a pleasure to talk things through with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Coming up, Lion Electric is set to get nearly $50 million in EV incentives, which is much more than originally expected. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Want to dive deeper into the topics you've heard here? Read the full stories and get access to all of Crane's award-winning coverage with a Crane's Chicago Business subscription. Crane's Daily Gist listeners can get 20% off a one-year Crane's Chicago Business digital subscription by visiting chicagobusiness.com gist and using promo code gist at checkout. Once again, to redeem this offer, visit chicagobusiness.com gist and enter code gist to get this deal while it lasts. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Crane's Rachel Herzog reported that a large piece of the Walgreens Boots Alliance campus is poised to become a residential development, with one of the country's largest home builders set to buy about a third of the Deerfield property. Herzog reported that a unit of Atlanta-based Pulte Group is under contract to purchase about 18 acres of the northern portion of the property and plans to build 42 single-family homes on the site, according to a letter informing area residents about the plans obtained and verified by Cranes. Herzog reported that Walgreens put about two-thirds of the company's 40-acre campus on the market last year while consolidating its workers into the remaining portion, a series of buildings at 100 Wilmot Road. A Walgreens spokesperson said February 9th that the drugstore giant opted to retain the other portion of the property that it put up for sale, which includes an office building at 200 Wilmot Road. Herzog also noted in reporting that two other major local companies, Allstate and Baxter International, 
also made deals to sell their suburban campuses to developers, although Baxter later backed off and announced it was reinvesting in the office after the developer pulled its plans to turn it into an industrial park. Herzog noted that while demand for office space in the suburbs has waned, demand for newly built homes in the area is strong. Builders sold over 5,000 new construction homes in the Chicago area in 2023, making it their second best year of sales of the past 15, according to data from home builder industry consultant Tracy Cross and Associates. And in Deerfield, residential construction could be more welcome than industrial development. The Deerfield Board of Trustees unanimously accepted amendments to its industrial zoning code to restrict warehouses and distribution facilities within village boundaries. The Chicago Tribune reported that the updates will prohibit motor logistics centers, freight terminals, fulfillment centers, and facilities used for parking or moving trucks. Crane's Corley J reported that in a memo to the mayor and the board, the Deerfield Plan Commission said, quote, the conversion of office parks to industrial centers have suburban areas faced with increased truck traffic and related adverse impacts such as increased safety risk to smaller vehicles, pedestrians and bicyclists, increased street maintenance, traffic congestion, reduced levels of service on streets and at intersections, and increased emissions. Jay noted that concerns over the industrial facilities also include an increase in traffic and noise, along with health hazards like lower air quality. But proponents of such developments say that they're an effective way to create new jobs and generate local tax revenue while using unused office space. But Jay also noted in reporting that battles over converting empty office parks to warehouses have been popping up across suburban Chicago in the last year. Amid record high office vacancy and demand for workspace that may have weakened for good, proposals have sprouted up all over to replace underused office buildings with distribution hubs for the online retail sector. But as Jay also noted, Deerfield was the site of an especially heated fight. Last May, hundreds of North Suburban residents packed the Deerfield High School gym to wave signs and boo as Chicago-based Bridge Industrial pitched its plan to demolish the Baxter International headquarters and build a pair of large industrial buildings on the 101-acre site. Bridge later withdrew its plan. The updates to Deerfield's code are expected to be adopted during the next board meeting on February 20th. Crane's sister publication Automotive News reported that Rivian Automotive said it cut prices on its R1T pickup and R1S crossover by $3,100 for the base models with 270 miles of range and added a new battery option with 315 miles of range at the previous prices. The R1T pickup with dual motors and the standard battery now starts at $71,700 with shipping, and the R1S in the same configuration starts at $76,700. Rivian said the models qualify for a $3,750 federal tax incentive, which is half the maximum. On a lease, the models qualify for the full $7,500, according to the automaker. Automotive News reported that Rivian resisted price cuts last year, citing its robust order backlog. Since then, however, there are clear signs that the electric vehicle market is growing more slowly than expected, according to analysts. Carl Brower, an executive analyst at IC Cars, told Automotive News, quote, Like every electric vehicle producer with a U.S. presence, Rivian has to reconcile past expectations with current market realities. He continued by saying, quote, price continues to be a leading factor in why people don't buy EVs. So anything Rivian can do to lower that barrier is a good idea. 
Automotive News reported that Rivian stuck to its pricing strategy last year after Tesla slashed prices to boost demand and other EV makers followed suit, including Lucid and Ford. Rivian's CEO said on an earnings call in August that the automaker had confidence in the value of its vehicles at the higher base prices. Rivian said in a press release announcing the price cuts, quote, We're leveraging our product portfolio to offer something new to customers who want to make the transition to electric today. The statement continued, quote, This opens Rivian ownership up to more and more people, which is vital to our mission. Rivian also said it will start delivering its pickup and crossover with standard and standard plus packs in March. Automotive News noted that Rivian doesn't break out sales by model, but registration data shows R1T deliveries falling last year as consumer interest shifted to the R1S which has been in short supply since mid-2023. New R1T registrations fell 9.7% in the January through November period to 10,245 vehicles compared with the same period in 2022, according to the most recent data from S&P Global. New R1S registrations rose to 21,689 from just 811 in the 11-month period compared with a year earlier. For November, new R1T registrations fell 36 percent to 799, while R1S numbers rose to just over 3,000 from 217 in the year earlier month. Automotive News also reported that to expand its potential market, Rivian introduced leasing for the first time in November for the R1T and followed with the R1S in January. The leases are limited to inventory models for residents of 15 states, including California, Texas, Florida, New York, and Colorado, but Rivian has said it expects to expand the program. Automotive News also reported that Rivian is also planning to present a new vehicle platform on March 7th that it will use to produce more affordable vehicles starting in 2026. Brower, the executive analyst at IC Cars that spoke with Automotive News, said that price cuts and lease deals in the EV market are likely not going away anytime soon, as the shift from combustion vehicles to electric ones plays out over many years. Crane's John Pletz reported that Lion Electric is getting nearly $50 million in state incentives for its electric bus factory outside Joliet, which is significantly more than originally expected. Pletz reported that Lion began manufacturing buses in late 2022 and completed a 900,000-square-foot factory in Chanahan last year. To receive the payroll tax credits, Lion will have to create 608 full-time jobs by the end of next year and more than 1,200 jobs by the end of 2028, according to recently filed state documents. The company declined to say how many workers it has in Shanahan now. Pletz reported that when the Canadian bus and truck maker announced its plans to build a factory in Illinois, the tax credits were estimated at $8 million with an employment target of about 750 jobs. But that was before Illinois created incentives tailored to help electric vehicle and battery manufacturers as part of a broader clean energy effort by Governor J.B. Pritzker. The law was updated in late 2022. Lion, headquartered near Montreal, is one of several EV-related manufacturers that Pritzker's team has landed in little more than two years. Pletz noted that there's been fierce competition among states over the past five years to attract and retain vehicle manufacturing jobs as the auto and truck industries move toward electric vehicles. 
Goshen, a supplier to Rivian, which has an EV factory in downstate Normal, will receive up to $536 million in state incentives to build a $2 billion battery assembly plant near Mantino that is expected to employ about 2,600 people and it's scheduled to receive $213 million in payroll tax credits over 30 years, plus $125 million from the state's so-called deal-closing fund, as well as other incentives. Stellantis, the parent company of Dodge and Chrysler, is also expected to receive a major incentive package related to its $5 billion decision to reopen and convert its Belvedere factory to EV manufacturing and add a battery plant, which is expected to create up to 5,000 jobs. Pletz noted, however, that the incentive deal with Stellantis has not been finalized. He further noted that Illinois has completed seven deals so far using EV incentives, including with Microlink devices, an electronics manufacturer in Niles involving about 60 jobs, and Decatur-based TCCI, which makes compressors for EVs involving about 150 jobs. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, reporter Ali Marathi. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.